Well, I'm happy to welcome you as we gather as the Christ Journey family. And wherever this day finds you, may you know that God is your refuge and your strength, a very present help in trouble. If you're in South Florida, across the nation, around the world, God's blessing, we are praying for you. Now, in an age of information overload, how we filter what we believe matters, doesn't it? Digital marketing, marketing experts say that Americans are exposed to some 10,000 advertisements a day. Add to that the barrage of personal stressors, fake news, alternative facts, uh, outright lies, and you've got a recipe for disaster when it comes to truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. But who's got it? And where does it come from? Is your truth the same as mine? Our series is Lies We Believe, and uh, we're confronting in it some of the most common lies faced in our culture, and today we're tackling another big one, God lies. Lies we believe about God. Now, if you're wondering, why would we talk about that? Did you know that one of the first stories in the Bible itself, Genesis chapter three, includes the inference that God lies? God can't be trusted. The serpent in the garden infers to Eve that God can't be trusted. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? As the story unfolds, the serpent suggests, Eve, God's holding out on you. I mean, what God knows is knowledge is power. God doesn't want to share his knowledge with you because he knows your eyes will be opened and then you'll be like God. Jesus would later say, the devil has got no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and the father of lies. And Eve's story is a case in point. But beyond the accusation that God lies, other voices in our culture are claiming that even the idea that there is a God is a lie. The very idea of God is a lie. Author Sam Harris, one of the new atheists, in his little book, Letter to a Christian Nation, he writes what he calls an open letter to a straw man, Bible-believing Christian America, and he challenges the issues as he sees them, and here's his conclusion. Religion in general and Christianity in particular is the most stupendous hoax ever perpetrated on the human race. A collective delusion, quote, he calls it. The big lie, and the sooner we get over it, the better. Now, this is not the first time that Christianity and faith have been targeted. Karl Marx claimed that religion is the opiate of the people, the masses, an enslaving agent. Atheist Sigmund Freud claimed that belief in God was our collective neurosis, this uh, projection of a longing for a father to care for us and watch over us. Darwin viewed religion as a survival strategy, of course. Former Beatle John Lennon sang asking people to imagine a world with no heaven, no hell, and no religion to now, it's not the purpose of this talk to refute Mr. Harris' book. Others more qualified than I are responding to the charge that God is a lie, including Francis, scientist Francis Collins, Pastor Tim Keller, and others responding to the new atheists like um, Hitchens, Dawkins, and Harris. But I do have one comment 
at one point in his book, Harris says, quote, there is no worldview more reprehensible in its arrogance than that of a religious believer. And he represents it this way, quote, the creator of the universe takes an interest in me, approves of me, loves me, and will reward me after death. My current beliefs drawn from scripture will remain the best statement of the truth until the end of the world. Everyone who disagrees with me will spend eternity in hell, close quote. Now there's the worldview. Then he offers this after comment. The, after, the average Christian in an average church listening to an average Sunday sermon has achieved a level of arrogance simply unimaginable in scientific discourse. Now that helped me out a bit because um, one thing we know for sure about us is that we're not average Christians. This isn't an average church, and we, what we don't do is preach average sermons around here, do we? No, of course not. Absolutely not. So I guess he's not writing about us, right? No, I'm joking, surely. And we could wish that it were not true, but it seems there is no shortage of narcissism and arrogance in our world, including the church world, where you may have even seen or participated in the behaviors that he is talking about that are anything but Christ honoring and people loving. Jesus corrected the Pharisees repeatedly for acts like that. Jesus taught his disciples many times this, that treating people right is the most right expression of being right and believing rightly. But the thought did rise to me that the claim there is no God that God is a lie, may qualify as reprehensibly arrogant. How can you know that there is no God? I mean, wouldn't you have to know everything? Think about it, right? In order to know for sure, you'd have to know everything. And if you don't know everything, then the question is, is it possible that in the percentage of information you have not yet come to know, God could exist? You just don't know it yet. So to claim that God is a lie or that there is no God is to make an extremely arrogant statement that either assumes total knowledge or some kind of special knowledge or in fact is a statement based on the absence of such knowledge which may qualify as an arrogant statement which also raises this question what do Christians base their their claim on our claim on well it's certainly not on total knowledge we don't have that but it is on special knowledge the special knowledge of eyewitnesses. In fact, the writers of the New Testament claim that the God exists. They claim their belief in the existence of God around their personal experience of Jesus risen from the dead. Not esoteric mysticism, not some kind of pagan religious mystery, not even Jewish history 
except that they claim that they saw the words of the law of Moses and the prophets of Israel fulfilled in Jesus Messiah as evidenced by his death and then his rising again, his resurrection from the dead. And here's what Luke's gospel says, the very beginning of it. He says he had interviewed the eyewitnesses who from the first were there with Jesus. I carefully investigated from the beginning he says. John says, that which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked at, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. That's empirical knowledge he's talking about. Eyewitness special knowledge. Paul, persecutor Paul, when defining what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians, one of the first letters he wrote, he said it's all about Christ dying for our sins, rising on the third day, then appearing to Peter, the 12, and then to more than 500 at the same time, and then James, and then last of all, he appeared to me. So here's the story. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and then Jesus rose after days in the grave, and then Jesus appeared to many people over many days in many places, including an appearance to Paul, who to that time in, in Acts chapter nine was a persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter nine, when he was, he was heading out to persecute and destroy followers in Jesus, why? Because they believed Jesus was God and he believed that was a lie. Until that point in his life, he truly believed that was a lie. Now, Pastor Andy Stanley says this, everyone has religious doubts. Certain things about God are unsettling. Our circumstances can make God seem distant or vengeful. Science can make God seem unnecessary. Those doubts can then cause us to abandon the faith. But maybe our perspectives are wrong. Maybe the gods we abandon never existed to begin with. Now, there's a thought. If these God ideas never existed, then where did they come from? Maybe lies that we were believing and then pasting on the true God. Thinking about that, I have three lies that come to mind in my personal journey with God. Maybe you faced them too. The first one is this, the God is out to get me lie. Chasing me down, God is like Javert in Les Mis. He is the obsessive police inspector who pursues me to punish me. He's coming after me. He's gonna find me out. He's gonna rub my face in my guilt and my shame. God is the fearsome eye in the sky who sees every error, every sin, every misstep. And then as soon as he sees me, he stands ready to condemn me, to reject me, to give me what I deserve, bad karma. God is the hanging judge who holds a grudge and he's gonna find me out. He's gonna find you out. And then he's going to chide you, scold you, condemn you, reject you, and shame you. Now, what do you do with a God like that? Run, <laughs> get away, right? But what if it's not true? 
What if it's a lie intended to keep you away from God? Now, another one familiar to me is the God is out to spoil my fun lie. This one's related to the first, but God is seen more as a spoiler than a judge. In this one, God is not out to condemn you and, uh, and delight in roasting you like a weenie over the fires of hell, but he is gonna say, now stop that. Stop that. God's like this oversized Puritan who goes through life finding people having fun, and he says, now cut that out. God is the ultimate health food enthusiast, think of this, who is always there ever to tell you what not to eat because of what it'll do if you put it in your body. Or God is the ultimate fitness guru who wants to help you stay in shape, but you know what you do, don't you? You avoid God and the church for the same reason that people avoid the gym or avoid the scales in the bathroom because it's gonna mess with your fun. Boundaries and expectations are the focus in this view. And, um, and you see God's emphasis not as an effort to protect you from self-damage or self-destruction, but rather something that hinders you from full self-expression. And if you're gonna have fun, it's just beyond your comprehension that God would ever wanna join you in having fun. Frolicking in delight? No. Frowning in disappointment with your lack of discipline. But what if it's not true? Third lie that I'm familiar with, the God's there but doesn't really care lie. You know, if God really loved me, wouldn't he be taking better care of me? I mean, if God really loved the world, then wouldn't, shouldn't he be taking better care of the people that are in the world? It's not that God's out to get you or that God's out to spoil your fun. It's just that God is out. I mean, you feel like Charlie Brown standing in need of psychiatric help and, and the doctor is out, off duty, God's the absent father. God's emotionally out of touch. God's out of, out of reach. He's the absentee landlord who never seems to check on his tenants. God's the bodyguard that is missing when you needed him most. Or the AAA agent, who, uh, the representative who didn't come when your car broke down. You look at all the suffering in the world, all the hunger, all the poverty, all the violence, all the abuse and the crime, and it's a little confusing. So probably, I mean, if God is personal, then God must be cruel. And, uh, or uncaring, so probably he's got a character issue. Which may explain why he insists on being praised, even though he obviously lets people suffer and die. So maybe God isn't personal at all. Maybe God is more like a force, like in Star Wars, you know, this impersonal force. Or maybe, maybe God is the universe. This is like a swarming collective of impersonal consciousness, but, uh, but he sure feels absent to you. The God who's there, 
but doesn't care. But what if that's a lie? There's a new group identified in population surveys, the de-churched. I mean, these are not the unchurched who've never been there, but these are those who have come and now choose not to come anymore, not to anymore. You know, they say this, quote, I, I used to believe, but then fill in the blank happened. You know, like I had this college professor who blew my faith away. Or um, I met people that were raised differently than I, and they were nice. Or um, I lost somebody that I really cared for. Or I used to believe, but then that thing happened that sent me reeling, you know, that the affair, the business betrayal, the rape, the accident, the crime, the, you know, whatever. And you know, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God never answered. You see, I've heard, I've heard stories like that throughout the years in my ministry, stories of unmet expectations, of disappointment based on perhaps for some childhood explanations of God. Others, perhaps, um, someone's poor interpretation of the Bible as applied to their life. Or perhaps, you know, some preacher's intentional fraudulent manipulation, and it's done damage. And there's hurt and there's heartache, but also the residual is this sense of doubt that... Uh, that can, can turn your heart away to false ideas about God. So where do you turn for truth about God? Well, <laughs> as Luke said and John said and Paul said, maybe the best place to go is to those who were first with Jesus because that's what they wrote it down so that we could have it. The letters of our New Testament were written from people who were there and felt it and saw it and, and experienced it. Like, like the guy who would tell us, you know, others in town despise me. And, uh, and yet Jesus came to my house for lunch and he brought forgiveness and hope that changed the whole trajectory of my life. Or like the woman, another woman who said, you know, my life was a relational wreck. But the healing began with Jesus' touch and his look and his word in my life. Or the other one who said, you know, others were judging me worthy of death. And yet Jesus intervened. He stood between me and the judgment and then gave me a brand new beginning. Or there was this one intellectual. He didn't really want to be seen in the daylight, so he came to Jesus after dark. And in their conversation, the topic of discussion was this. How is truth more than propositional? And Jesus explained that it was relational. It's like being born all over again by the personal grace of the life-giving God. So stories like this tell me that of all the religions and all the God groups in the whole world for all the history of the world, Christianity is the one with Jesus. We've got a Jesus. Christianity claims that the answer to God lies, lies about God, lies we believe about God, is not gonna be found in a series of arguments, but in a person. 
the person of Jesus. Christianity at its heart is not rules that we obey or adhere to or doctrinal ideas that we sign off on or agree with. It is about a personal relationship with Jesus, God's Christ. And by his spirit, since Jesus rose from the dead, God has given his spirit to help those who are seeking him be led into the truth and find him and feel him as we respond to his invitation. So you wanna know what God is like. Those who first experienced him wrote, wrote it like this. Colossians 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. John wrote this, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only glory came from the Father, full of grace, unconditional love, and truth. There it is. How do you know the truth about God? Well, God comes in Jesus to make it personal and introduce it. No one has ever seen God, John says, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has what? Made him known. So we can know him. What does that mean? To those struggling with the first lie, God is out to get me lie, Jesus says this, I came that you might have life and life to the full. John 3, 17 says, the son didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Romans 8, the, per, the persecutor Paul said this, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus leads us to understand God's truth. For those of us struggling with the God is out to spoil my fun lie, remember, it was Jesus who turned the water into wine on the day they ran out at a wedding feast. And not only did he turn it into wine, he turned it into 120 to 180 gallons. There were six water pots there, each one holding between 20 and 30 gallons, and this was more than enough for one wedding. It was this Jesus who was criticized by the self-righteous for having way too much fun. It was this Jesus who had to correct his disciples because he wanted to hang out with the kids and just enjoy them and bless them. And the disciples had to learn, oh, God is ready to frolic with his children. Paul says, the former persecutor Paul, wrote this in one of his letters, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So if you're wrestling with the God is there but really doesn't care lie, I mean, this is like, how could he allow suffering in the world? Maybe more personally, how could he allow you to have the suffering that you've been through if he really cared? This Jesus not only heals in time, but in eternity this Jesus does justice by entering into the injustice, not by removing the possibility of freedom misleading us into injustice, but no, he enters into the injustice, the suffering, the shame that is ours. He enters into it, he embraces it, he takes it upon himself, and then he overcomes it by rising and then empowering us, not by delivering us from it, but delivering us through it and developing us in it to be overcomers as well. 
This Jesus, though, God is not absent from our suffering personally or globally or socially today. He is still responding to it and available in it as we turn to him. And church, listen, he wants to be there through his body, through us making the difference. Now this life, but not, not only through this life, but promising a new life. Eternally, a world yet to come. This world with all of this life, this world with its corruption and its crime and its fraud and its pride isn't the end of the story, not with this Jesus. There's a new world coming. And um, this life is not all there is. Jesus is with us in it and we're gonna be with him in eternity. But until then, he gives us his own presence, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ who guides us into truth, Jesus said. The relational experience of reality in Christ. He is not a dead God hanging on a cross in a church building. He is alive and he is available and he is present when we respond in trust to his invitation. And that's why at the close of the New Testament, Jesus is standing at the door. He says, I look, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. The personal, experiential, relational expression of truth. Now maybe you've grown up, but your faith hasn't yet. You still have some of that residual childhood that, that needs to grow into adult understanding. Maybe you tasted sour grapes somewhere along the way. You know, there's plenty to go around. But I'm assuming that you would not judge the genius of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony because you just heard it played by an elementary beginner band. Those sincere were poor in their performance. No, you would know that the author and composer, his genius is not diminished by others who may be trying and not quite getting it right yet. So likewise in our world, don't judge God just because you've had a bad experience with someone trying to represent him. Many of the lies we believe about God are based on what someone else did or what someone else said. What I wanna encourage you to do today is go to the source. The scripture says, God is not man that he should lie. He invites us into the truth and what that means is his truth can be trusted. And believer, here's the challenge to you. Live your life to be part of the answer that, to the question people are asking. So that when they rub up against you or experience you in the midst of the mess of this world, that they have reason to say, how did she do that? How did he manage that? And then maybe have reason to say as they did of the first followers, they took note that they'd been with Jesus. May our lives help others know that so they can find and follow him too. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the genius of your composition in the amazing wonder and magnificence 
of this glorious universe and then the mystery and profound genius that we experience in life on this planet. We thank you for the gift of freedom, but we apologize for the way we have abused it over time and even in our own time in creating hurt and heartache, distrust. But we thank you that you haven't given up on us, that you have come in the flesh, in the world, to enter into the conversation and then resolve the justice issue by taking our punishment, taking our penalty, and then giving us your presence and your power that we might now be part of your solution for our world. I pray that you will fill fresh every believer who has been struggling with doubt, whatever lie has been tangling them up, that this day might be a day toward greater freedom. And especially we pray, Father, for those seekers that have been joining us, for someone who's wrestling with atheism or agnosticism or some level of skepticism and doubt, that they would sense your personal draw to come closer and to enter the conversation. And friend, if that's you and you'd like to know how to let Christ enter your spirit and mind and body, we saw it in the scripture. If you hear my voice, open the door and I will come in. You can join me in prayer right now. Lord Jesus, I open the door of my life and I welcome you to come into my soul. I receive the gift of forgiveness and salvation through your work on the cross and the resurrection. And now I ask you, Lord, to make yourself known to me that I could walk with you in truth that will set me free. And we make our prayer in your name, amen. Now our head's still bowed just for a moment, but if you're one of those who just trusted Christ, then I'm gonna invite you to raise your hand and allow us to pray for you and your journey forward. Online, you can just simply click that banner right there on screen. Thank you. Thank you. Kendall Campus, likewise, we're watching and praying our pastors. Lord, thank you for every hand raised as a symbol of a heart opened and your presence now, we pray, would assure them of the gift of your grace the gift of your love, the gift of your forgiveness, the gift of salvation. And may this be the day of a brand new journey forward into truth that leads to freedom. In your name we pray, amen.